The District is brought to you by Stuff Picks, bringing the best crime, documentary and mystery movies of the big screen to your screen. Just a quick warning, this series contains explicit language. Episode 4, The Tale of Ted Tickle. Howdy, how you doing? Alright, how you going? Alright, we've just left the net. I, I said it'd be two hours. Yeah, you on, good. <laughs> Over the months, um, as we so delve into the case, Des Thomas and I speak on the phone and catch up frequently. Are you, have you still got plans to come up this week? Or? Well, we go, I gotta go up there every day. Yeah. Up to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Des's partner is unwell through most of it. So Des is juggling normal life and work with trying to clear his family name and perhaps solve an unsolved murder, as well as caring for his partner and taking her to hospital visits. When will you know what the appointments are? Oh, uh, well, I won't know till Friday. Okay. Do you want to give me a ring yeah. on Friday once you know what time the appointments are? Yeah. Okay. As often as we talk... Howdy. We keep circling back to the same sort of themes. The feeling that the Thomas family is the victim of an injustice that keeps going and going and going. The police complaints told me that in a letter that they have got a report from the police. This time, we're talking about Des Thomas's attempts to get hold of a police report. They said no, so then I put an um, Official Information Act request to the Commission of Police. Yeah. But... Like all of mine, <laughs> nothing happens, you know. I, I, I haven't heard anything. So is that with the Ombudsman? There was a police complaint authority. Oh. The, the Ombudsman is still mucking around with that Appendix 1. Wow, OK. This is taking forever. Oh, yeah. It's taking longer than me. We're Thomases, man. We're Thomases. People want that sleeping dog's life. Yeah, you fucking live like that, eh? Just stood out like dog's balls. Alright, here you going? Howdy. Everything's been covered up. This is a Stuff Circuit podcast called The District. A story about injustice, about a murder investigation that goes off the rails, about gossip and whispered accusations. But mostly, a story about people. People who are trying to get on with their lives, but can't. This story is produced by Toby Longbottom and Paula Penfold, with field recording by Phil Johnson. I'm Eugene Bingham. There's a strong circumstantial case that the axle came from Alan Thomas's trailer and was linked to the Thomas farm. Deputy Police Commissioner Grant Nichols speaking at the release of the Crew Murder Review in 2014. So collectively these point to Arthur Thomas's .22 Browning rifle as being the likely murder weapon. So yeah, you can see why the Thomas family has a sense that even though Arthur Thomas has been declared innocent, they remain under police suspicion. And it's a sense felt by more than just Dez. Now, we came into this um, when the review started, when Lovelock actually came into our house. 
and uh, started asking questions. And That's Des Thomas's sister, Margaret. She's talking about Detective Superintendent Andy Lovelock, who led the review you just heard Deputy Commissioner Nichols talking about. So the review was the one just a couple of years ago that the police Absolutely. did where they went back over you, everything. Yeah, yeah. because um, in 1980 we sort of um, left the Thomas case and just went in to look after our own children and... Um, you know, lived their own lives. But when this man came into our house and started sort of questioning us and not listening, but, you know, it was all pointed, um, I just stopped to think and I thought, no, this, this, is, this is actually quite dangerous. Margaret is married to Buster Stuckey. They came into our house. They didn't even make an appointment, didn't even have the decency to say, look, would you mind coming? We'd like to ask a few questions. They just came barging into our house and made all these allegations about how we were involved, that we were involved through fencing for the crews, which was wrong. There was just a bunch of lies. And uh, Buster is a bit of a character himself. Come in. And he has a curious knack of showing up every time we're at Des's house. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. He's always anxious to know how we're getting on and what we know. I see I missed a call from you. Yeah, yeah, I was just uh, talking with Desmond yesterday and thought maybe we'd give you a ring and... See how it's going? Yeah, okay. You can understand Buster's frustration. For him, it became personal when the Lovelock review team suggested he'd worked for Harvey and Jeanette Crew before the murders, the insinuation being that he was somehow involved. They accused us of doing fencing for the crews, that's myself and Richard's, uh, Desmond's brother Richard. Now, they knew, I would say... Probably the first week that they started their review work, they went and found the person who actually did it, who was Ted Tickle from down on the Tikahonga Road, but they still had the cheek to come out to our place and make these accusations that we knew the crews, and I didn't even know them, I knew of them, mm. and that we had been working for them. Mm. That's how blatant it is. Partly because he's got such a great name. It's a tight Ted Tickles. And partly because we want to check out Buster's version of the story. We decide to go and meet Ted Tickle and his daughter Robin. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. Did you find us okay? Easy. They live in the district, not far from the Waikato River, where the crew bodies were dumped after the murders. Hi Robin. Hi, how are you? I'm Eugene. Ted is a well-known figure around here, mostly because he was heavily involved in rodeos, breeding bulls. Yeah, I've seen some funny things happen. I've seen a bloke uh, run like bloody hell and he, he slammed the gate and, and the bull chased him. Man, he was gone. His house is packed with memorabilia and faded photos from those days. The rooms off the lounge are even built to look like stalls in a barn. Ted Tickle is a huge man. He's tall with big hands and a big head. When you say someone as strong as an ox, you'd picture someone like Ted in his prime. But at 88, he's getting on. And while his frame is still imposing, physically, he's frail. He sits in a reclining armchair with his legs out in front of him, covered in a blanket to keep him warm. He still holds court, though. Ted, can you just start by just telling us your name? Well, you know, which name do you want? That's the ones people call me all. Yeah, you're, you're, Give us all your names. Oh, the old bastard. Or well, no, no. That was last night when you got up five times during the night. <laughs> so, it was actually a lot worse than that I was calling him, believe me. 
Just say what your name is. Ted. And your surname? Tickle. Edward. The so, old bastard. So you're Edward... Even at 88, he's a bit of a handful. Yeah. Well, when Phil's got the mics recording... He can't start without having a laugh with Phil Johnson recording the interview. Who did you pinch your pants from? They're <laughs> <laughs> a bit large. <laughs> Just look a little bit. <laughs> but eventually, we get to the main point of why we're here. Ted Tickle confirms that it was he and his brother-in-law who did the fencing for the crews not long before the murders. And that it didn't go smoothly between him and Harvey Crew. You had a bit, a bit of an argument with him, what, just about the fencing, about the job? Oh, yeah, I just forget what it was about now. Yeah, yeah. But that was about a week before. Yeah, it wasn't very long before. Yeah, we were supposed to report and uh, we told them we'd, uh, yeah, yeah, we had a job and as soon as we'd finished it, we'd come and do theirs. Yep. And uh, we finished the job and... We, uh, brother and I went, yeah, we didn't report to the house. We didn't go into the house. We cut down the, the road to the job and we took a shortcut through the gully and carried our gear. And he went crook and said we should have reported to the house. Ted Tickle repeats his interactions with the crew several times. You didn't report to the house. And we get a bit of a sense from Ted of what it was like on the crew farm a week or so before the murders. How Ted had a bit of a barney with Harvey Crew about the fence. There's nothing sinister in that in itself. But we get a picture of Harvey as a man who wasn't afraid of a confrontation. And we wonder, was he tense about something? Just before that, she was, they were killed and all this happened. I was working across the road and I said to my wife, she must be madly in love with that girl because she'd see him Harvey Krug off and in the morning and she'd walk and she'd be walking behind him carrying the baby. He's talking about Jeanette Crew. She'd follow follow Harvey around the farm yeah. with Rochelle. And I said she must be madly in love. Yeah. But, but the poor girl was scared to stay at home, I think. Maybe she was scared. She had reason to be. There had been strange incidents on the farm in the previous couple of years. There was a burglary. Then the house was set on fire while Jeanette was in hospital after giving birth to Rochelle. Months later, the hay barn burned down. Howdy. How are you? We had a good trip out to Port Waikato today. Yep, we'll get catch some fish. <laughs> no luck. Plenty of good spots out there? Uh, I think you've got to fight the waves a bit. We tell Des Thomas about visiting Ted Tickle and ask him if he knows anything about Jeanette being scared. Well, there have been stories that she was a bit... She didn't like to stay in the house by herself for some reason. Was that to do with the like the the fire, or the fires and things, and the the burglary and that? Yeah, maybe? the hay barn, but yeah. but we don't know what else. Like, um, yeah, you know, whether someone else was fucking like, you know, for for these fires and burglaries and all that, that's someone close, eh? It's someone yeah. handy. You can't drive down there, park your car there, and then go and fucking light a fire in the house. No. There's another thing you'll get to know about Des Thomas. He does love a good swear word. Got to be someone, some neighbour that's that's handy to do all that shit. See, so yeah. well, we don't know what other things did concern her because you know it's yeah. not on the file. Yeah, it's not right. on the file. Yeah. 
Dears knows this because over the years he's got hold of parts of the police file. He has a copy of the original file cards which catalogue all the evidence police gathered. An obsession with fighting injustice requires an obsession with detail and not being afraid of mountains of paper. But there's stuff which isn't on any file Dears Thomas has seen. Does it start to make you wonder who else you don't know about? Oh, that's what I keep saying to you. Look, look, at, look at what happened with Paul Jellick. We're about to get back on that roller coaster. Paul Jellick is a guy who contacted Des Thomas out of the blue after the Lovelock Review came out. Jesus, I, I couldn't believe it when he rang me and then I thought, oh yeah, you know, because I've had a few people ring up and say different things and, and, and it sort of, you know, I didn't, didn't think much of it until he said that his parents went to the trial. You'd think in a 338-page report, with a swag of appendices, everything would have been covered off, every person spoken to at least mentioned. But this is the first Des has heard of Paul Jellick. You know, this pisses you off, and it's just, um, this is why Lovelock's report is so one-eyed, because they don't want any of this stuff to come out. Here's the guts of it. Paul Jellick says his parents were asked by the police to go to Arthur's trial to give evidence. But in the end, the police never called them to the witness stand. Which is odd, because you'd think their evidence was pretty important. It concerns a gun, another gun dating back to before the murders. We want to go and see Paul Jellick, and when we tell Des that, he suggests that we show Paul the gun that was found at Tony Clark's farm. The rusted old 22 recovered from that dam not far from the Cruz farm, just in case Paul recognises it. So, somehow, we find ourselves out at Des's place picking up the gun, trying not to think about the fact that this could be the gun which is central to the country's most notorious unsolved murder. All right, I think we should um, get out of here. Let's get the gun. And also, a little bit nervous about the fact that we don't have a firearms licence. Des reckons we'll be fine. So we're okay carrying this gun because it's not actual working firearms, isn't it? Because we don't have licences. Well, no one knows you've got it. No. And, and then... Well, what happens here, if you go out of here and the police pull you up, yeah. you, and, they, and they see that gun, you say, now we've caught you, cunt, because this was a setup to see whether our phones have been tapped. <laughs> That's all you say, and then they'll just bloody jump in your car and drive away. Do you think they are tapping your phone? Oh, shit, yeah, they were tapping our phones in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Do you think they still are? Hey? Do you think they still are? Oh, they've got better technology nowadays. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't worry me. All is all, Everything I'm doing is the truth. Yeah. Hey? yeah. yeah. Right, so I shortened this box a bit hey, so you fit in the boot of your car. So. Have you seen the car? <laughs> <laughs> Have you got a roof rack? <laughs> <laughs> Good see you, Buster. All Good right, to see, you. see you, Des. All right. Thank you very much. Until next time. All right. Okay. Any t- time. Only if there's biscuits. Of course, no one ends up pulling us over. Instead, it's a smooth trip up north to Paul Jellick's dairy farm to meet him and his big dog, Stuart, a Great Dane. And when we say big, we mean horse. So we quite often have to kick him off the bed in the middle of the night because he's snuck up. Not that he can sneak. <laughs> yeah, he's not a sneaky. He guy. thinks he can sneak. <laughs> he'll keep his eye on the tucker. What Paul One wants to tell us about is a time when he was about 12 years old. 
a time in the years or months before the crews were murdered. His family used to travel from their home in South Auckland to a holiday home or batch on the Coromandel. And you used to go down there regularly? Every week, just about every weekend, all school holidays. Yep. Spent most of my life down there, really, other than going to school. One day, he's mucking around with two other kids who were down at the same time, kids he doesn't remember. They're in a dinghy heading up an estuary where Paul is collecting shellfish. And the other, the other two boys went investigating, as they said. We're going to go and investigate. And um, anyway, they disappeared. And uh, I'd, I'd put some oysters in the, in the boat, a few of them in there. And they turned back up and they come down out of here. And they had three rifles. Three rifles, a shotgun, a 303, and a 22. And they've stolen them from a batch. Paul doesn't see exactly which one. The boys get away as fast as they can. When they get back to Paul's batch, the other boys hide the guns, stashing them under a water tank at the place next door. But Paul's a bit worried, a bit scared, so he tells his mum about the guns under the tank, but he doesn't tell her about the rest of the story, where they came from. She basically said, oh, bullshit. I said, no, true. There's real guns under, and, and underneath his tank tent. Yeah. She goes, go, go down and, and pull it out. And anyway, she couldn't even be able to come downstairs. We're two-story bed. She stood up on the deck and looked yep. across. And um, anyway, I went downstairs and I went round and she was standing on the deck, leaning over the deck, watching, and I, I pulled the rifles out and held one up and showed her. Yeah. Well, she did a bit of a blue-ass panic and told me, put it down, don't touch anything, just put it down gently. Stick it in. Yep, yeah, and she did a big bloody panic and come, come tearing down and came out and... Um, Anyway, uh, she looked at them and she was really pretty shitty about the whole thing. And she said, right, uh, you can give me a hand. We're going to take him home. And um, I'll be talking to your dad when he gets home about this. This is not on. You okay. boys you, you know, boys shouldn't be able to just find guns. I didn't tell her where they'd come from, obviously. No. And, um, of course, there was no way I was going to let on to Maury that I was down there when they got it because it would have been a hell of a hiding for me. Even though I had nothing to do with the pinching, yeah. it was just the sheer fact I would have been there that I would have been in. Guilt by association. His yeah. mother and stepfather, Morrie, decide they're going to confront the neighbour. And here's the thing. The neighbour is Rod Rasmussen. You'll recall his name. The guy who worked on the trailer for Dears and Arthur Thomas's father, Alan. You know, the axle, the stub axles, that stuff. Because I'm shitting my pants at this point, you know. Anyway, they were just inside the doorway of Rod's batch. And I'm just outside the doorway. Um, and it was dark. I don't know. I don't even know if they were aware I was there or not. Um, and I heard them talking to Rod and the guns had been put on his table. And uh, Rod was saying, oh, I don't know anything about them. I don't know nothing about it. And Murray was going, well, this is pissing me off. Where the hell are these guns come from? Does it come from any of your mates or anything like that? And Rod said, oh, it could be one of my honey mates. They were down in the middle of the week. Uh, he may have left the guns behind. And Maurice says, well, either I hand them into the cops or you hand them into the cops or you find out who the hell it is. It's, talk to your mates first. And Rod turned around and said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Look, leave them here. Leave them with me and I'll have a talk to my mate. And if they're his, I'll get them back to him. If not, I'll give them to the police. Murray goes, oh, yep, sweet, good. And then... Normal circumstances, I guess, that would have been the end of the matter. That would have been fine. That would have been fine. But what happened next? Well, I don't know how long after it was, but it was after that fact. After that fact. Um, we all heard about the crew murders. 
and that was shocking back and then at that time you know a murder back then was a big event huge event when rod rasmussen's and, uh, name pops up in the news as a witness yeah, in the police case it prompts paul jellick's stepfather maury to wonder what's happened to those guns and i remember him and mum talking and he said you know i think i might just check paul jellick says rod rasmussen told his parents he'd handed them into the police but Maury is suspicious and checks with the police. Sat down with mum, he was on the phone, he got a phone and he said those guns were never handed in. Who tell him the guns have not been handed in, despite what Rod Rasmussen is saying. You know, what do we do now? Paul Jellick says the way his parents saw it, Rod Rasmussen's credibility was shot if he wasn't telling the truth about the guns. And if he wasn't credible, how could he be a star witness in a double murder trial? The way it had all gone down must have scared his mother so much that soon after the trial was over, she gave Paul a sharp warning. She sat me down and she stared me straight in the face. And she said, you are never, ever to breathe a word of any of this to anyone. The cops are crooked. For 40 years, Paul Jellick does keep quiet. Until one day a few years ago, he gets a call from the police. His mother is long since dead by now, but it turns out that years earlier, she'd confided in a friend, and that friend went to the crew review team led by Andy Lovelock and told them about Paul Jellick and the guns. Which leads to a call from Grant Coward, a detective Paul knows in Taranaki, where he's living at the time. What the hell's going on, Paul? He says, I just had, had notification from Auckland. I said, oh yeah, oh shit, what's going on? What's happened, mate? What's happened? He goes, apparently you are a witness in a murder. I said, what? He said, a murder? Yeah, a murder. I said, not that I know of, mate. He goes, the crew murders. I went, oh, shit. And it, I remember I just sunk. It was like, shit. I said, really? I said, you're wasting your time. And he goes, why is that? I says, because I won't go anywhere. I said, drop it. He said, oh, sorry, I can't drop it, mate. He says, he says, with you, you either come in or we'll come and get you. I said, all right, I'll come in two days after that, you know. Paul Jellick is cynical, but he does go into the police station for the interview with Grant Coward and gives a statement. Look, he said, I'm going to send this off, but in the meantime, I'm going to do a bit of checking myself. He said, if that's all right with you. I said, yes, yeah, what do you want to do? He said, well, it all comes down to when those guns were stolen and if they were ever handed in. Paul Jellick says that a few days later he gets a call from Grant Coward. He's been able to find some police records about the guns. I said, you're joking. From way back then, he goes, yep. The old paperwork confirms the guns were reported stolen. But it's what it doesn't say that's most important. As far as you know, there's no record of them being handed in. No. Grant told me that. They were never handed in. Obviously, we're going to have to do some more digging about that. But in the meantime, we decide it's time to show Paul Jellick the gun recovered from Tony Clark's dam. Could it be one of the weapons the boys stashed under the water tank all those years ago? So this was at a property within a couple of kilometres of the crew farm. And it was in a, a dam. And it had been, it was found barreled down, yeah. like it had been pushed into the mud. That someone had concealed it. Um... And there it lay until the pond was drained not long ago. A rifle like that, you're not going to throw into a pond, are you? No, you're not, especially back in that day. No, that's a pretty flashed rifle for those yeah. days. Yeah. I honestly can't 
say I recognise it. Okay. To be absolutely honest. Yep, no, that's um, good. That's good. So it's kind of a dead end. This case has so many. Or if not dead ends, old, dusty, overgrown country lanes. Roads that were once busy with tractors and trucks crisscrossing the district, but now lead nowhere. When we went to see Ted Tickle, as we were leaving, he said something probably lots of people think. Uh, you know, I thought we were through all this, and there yeah, they're still buggered around with it. Yep, yep. Don't you let sleeping dogs lie. Letting sleeping dogs lie is an understandable thought. It is almost 50 years. But the legacy of what happened still reverberates around the cow sheds, the hay barns and the farmhouse kitchens. Tony Clark. And it's still out there and it's very active still in the area. People still talk about it. Um, and I think there's a lot of skullduggery going on and behind the scenes as well um, that have never been sorted out. And um, I think it's time that the Thomas family and the crew family had closure on this. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a widespread feeling in the, in the district, isn't it? Um, well, the district is divided, um, I believe. Um, some go one way, some go the other, and which is a shame, really. Um, people feel like that, but um, anyhow, the man's been pardoned, and um, I think justice needs to be done now. But to Dez, Buster and Margaret, the Justice League, justice is far from done. What there are? Loose ends. Lots of them. Like the mystery of the gun from the dam at Tony Clark's farm. Then there's the mystery of the guns Paul Jellick talks about, and their connection to a key witness. And how, even though Paul Jellick was interviewed, when the Lovelock Review comes out, there's no mention of anything he had to say. Dez isn't surprised. No. But even he's shocked when he finds out about a third mystery gun. And this time, there's something unusual, very unusual, about the way the police deal with it. You see all these things, and then you think, Jesus Christ, what else is here? That's next time on The District. The District is a Stuff Circuit podcast series. Written and produced by Toby Longbottom, Paula Penfold and me. Toby also edits the series. Phil Johnson and I recorded the sound. Blame me for the dodgier bits. The final sound mix was provided by David Livesich at Radiate Sound. Archival sound recordings from the RNZ collection at Nga Taonga Sound and Vision. And our music is from Audio Network. Mark Stevens, Patrick Crudson and Keith Lynch are the executive producers. We had digital help from Suyun Son and Alex Liu. You can find out more about the podcast series and the characters in this story over at stuff.co.nz. Have a look at the website where you can find extras, including some wonderful archival photographs. Oh yeah, and some recipes. We spent so much time in farmhouse kitchens, we thought we should share the love. I'm Eugene Bingham. Thanks for listening. Hooked on Crime and Mystery? The best crime, documentary and mystery movies are ready to watch tonight at Stuff Picks. Go to stuffpicks.co.nz today to rent the latest blockbusters and new releases for just $6.95 with no subscription fees. Thanks for listening to The District. We're giving Stuff members access to bonus episodes of the podcast. Go to stuff.co.nz and log in and we'll tell you what to do next.